Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 85. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, filling in for Troy Goodfellow, who is traveling this week. With me tonight is my podcast familiar, freelance writer Julian Rabbit Murdoch. Does that mean I have to like sit on your shoulder like some godforsaken dragon or something? That's what you do anyway, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us tonight is Hasbro game designer and board game aficionado Rob Davio. Rob, yep. thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. We also welcome back our friend Chris Remo, formerly of Gamma Sutra and Idle Thumbs, and now of Irrational Games. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Again. For some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, I just want to talk about one game with you, and then you can leave. Um, tonight, we're, tonight we're discussing uh, auctions, negotiations, and betrayals. Um, and this topic, we do owe a little bit to uh, Chris and the rest of the Idle Thumbs diaspora. Um because they put me onto a game called Vinehandler. Um, and that's a game that sort of made me reassess my view of games that involve bidding. But more broadly, I thought it would be fun to talk about games that are as much about manipulating people as they are about manipulating systems. Um, and these guys know all about manipulating people. <laughs> that, that's how I got on the show. <laughs> you know, I don't think I had a choice. Um, <laughs> So yeah, but I, I thought an easy place to start would be to it would be to talk about Vinehandler, um, just because right now it's sort of the reigning game obsession. Uh, now, I don't know, Julian, have you had time to show Rob uh, Vinehandler? No, I haven't, but uh, but but I will. But partially that's because you took off with the only copy we had. I don't own it. You're the only person I know who owns a copy of this game. So why don't oh. you, why don't you go ahead and explain why uh, Winehandler is an interesting game? Um. Well, I mean, so so it's it's a pre, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, basically, the the conceit is you're trying to get the most prestigious seller, uh, the most prestigious wine seller. Uh, well, let's just say in all of Germany, um, and the way you do this is by bidding on wines that come up for auction. Uh, you know, dealt randomly from a deck, and what you bid are wines of your own. Uh, they all have a value, and what you're competing you're competing against other players to assemble powerful combinations of um wines and what's what's really interesting is that the bidding dynamic almost changes with every round because it's not just about winning the the auction but the winning bid actually becomes the new um you know the new wine lot and the second place player gets those cards in his deck right so it's so 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 to to maybe illustrate that a little bit more clearly or or worse depending on your perspective so if if what's up for auction is three blue wines uh which are valuable because they're all blue uh and we get into a fierce bidding war between rob and i about who's going to win this supposedly valuable lot of three blues we may have actually bid six or seven bottles of wine of varying values and varying colors and varying shapes uh, in order to go after this lot. Now, Rob wins. He takes those three blue wines into his collection, and then he has to put what he bid into the center, which I now get because I came in second. So as the bids evolve from because, you you know, like most bidding games, you go around and you have to bid higher than the previous person. As the bid evolves, you may see wines on the come on the table as bids that are actually the ones you really want. So your initial strategy may be, eh, you know what, if I can if I can get this big lot, lot of wine for 
you know, four dollars or four euros, I'll go ahead and do that. That's fine. But then somebody bids something that you're like, ooh, I really want to win what he's bidding. So then it becomes this game of coming in second or coming in third to try to win uh, a particular bottle of wine that was never part of the game at the beginning of the bidding round, which leads to hilarity. And that goes even uh, that can even go, uh, you know, one or more layers further, because then you, you also start realizing that the the simple act of bidding a wine means someone else might very well get that wine into their hand that turn. And if you realize that one of the wines you don't need is one that another person needs, you have to be really careful about what place in in the sort of bidding round you come in and whether some other person is going to end up with the bid that you put in there that you don't want to end up with it. Um, and so there's this really strange multi-tiered aspect to the bidding because it matters what's in the center. That's ostensibly what people are bidding on. It matters if you end up with someone else's bid and it matters if someone else ends up with your bid. And so because there's only one resource that's used for all of these purposes, every single aspect of that is incredibly interconnected and, and it leads to this really weird psychological game. And and it does it, like most games, and and we'll get in a minute why I think it's so important to have Rob Davio on. It becomes a game as much about screwing your neighbor as it is about trying to make yourself better, right? Yeah. Because you can you can sort of choose to play the game one of two ways: just sort of well, I'll just bid what I need to bid to maximize the value of my seller. Or you can sort of do the opposite and manipulate your bids so that what you're putting out is clearly garbage for what everybody else is collecting. So that you're doing nothing but loading people down with crap they don't really want. right? So it has this, this dichotomy of am I advancing myself or am I screwing the other guy? And, and you can really play the game both ways or with any kind of balance in between. Well, like I, a, I was going to say it sounds like a clever game. And I'm mad now that you took it away when I was out visiting Julian. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, b- b- Rob, part of the reason that I wanted to, to talk to you about this in particular is you've spent a lot of your career designing variants on risk, which yes, is to me the ultimate fist fight inducing game where you like end up in these situations where somebody is clearly not going to win, but is in the position to really fuck somebody else. And, and so, so I, I was sort of curious on your take on in board games in general, how do you manage that level of screw your neighbor in a game? Because it can be really fun, but it can also, I mean, literally I've gotten in more near fist fights over risk 2210 games than any other game I own. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is we got, I stormed out of a room playtesting Risk 2210. <laughs> and it wasn't like the first playtest. It was like the 40th. It was like we were almost ready to be done. And I ended up leaving the room because my co-designer made some alliance to teach me a lesson for some perceived slight that I had done on turn one. And I said, but we're testing something in turn five. And he's like, too bad. <laughs> I said, well, you're not, ge- you're not getting there without me. And I just left and went back to my desk. <laughs> And we have another story from Risk 2210 at work, which is, um, and for those who haven't played it, and most people have, have, have heard of Risk or have not played it who are listening to this, is one of the things that Risk 2210 AD does is it distills the game down into five turns. and But each of the turns is longer and more in-depth. So what happens is you're investing more in each of these sort of precious resources of five turns. And if someone turns around on turn three and you're over an hour into the game, and betrays you, that's one thing. You can almost handle it. But if they just betray you sort of 
meaninglessly. They just kind of stab you because they're bored. And you know that there's not enough time to get back into it. You know, you've just given away 75 minutes and, and now you're just in a position to lose. It's it like crystallizes all of the frustration of risk down into something <laughs> awful. You sound so proud. It's, well, I, I have mixed feelings about that one. Um, but the, the story I love is people were playing at work. Someone turned around and betrayed someone. It was after work. They're playing at someone's house. And the guy just got up and left the table. And they were waiting for him to cool down. And after about five minutes, they went to look for him. And his car was gone. He got up without a word, <laughs> left the house, and just drove home. Like, that was it. There was no discussion. There was no – just, he just left the scene. Um, all of that is just rambling anecdotes. Um, I inherited risk. I mean, obviously, I wasn't around in 1959 or late 50s to design it, but I've sort of played around with all sorts of different risk variants. And it's interesting because it's just a game that brings out lots of hostility, which a lot of people really love about it. Um, And I was thinking about it today, knowing I was going to be on the podcast and try to figure out what what makes a game full of backstabbing and betrayal and. My initial thinking, you know, up to debate for everyone here is certainly in risk. It's a zero sum game. Um, There's not a lot of resources. The game starts with all of the resources on the board. The territory is controlled. And so whenever you make something better for yourself, it's at the cost of someone else. So there's no free areas or neutral zones or opening gambit where we're just moving pieces around. There is to some extent because you try to take the territories that aren't as valuable but all of that is sort of a gentleman's agreement not to get upset as things are taken from you but eventually it gets to a point where you just you have to just rip someone else's hard work from their hands and so if you're going to tell them from turn one i'm going to do this they're not going to let you do it and the only way you're going to get to do it is to just pretend you're not going to and until you do right because the betrayal is inevitable right i mean it's a little bit and that's part of one of the the interesting things i was sort of trying to think about how that plays out in the video game world where you play a game for instance like starcraft which is about the most screw you competitive strategy game i know because you get in your opponent's face very very quickly um and what what games like starcraft seem to lack is that real sense of oh now you're betraying me and i could god I was going to say, have you played um, Neptune's Pride? No, I oh haven't. Oh, my God. Because that game, oh, my God. Be- I Neptune's- still haven't forgiven you for that bullshit alliance with Brecken, by the way. Really? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is this is one of these, am I right? This is one of these sort of long format strategy games that you yeah, play it's through a, the web? Yeah, it's real time, but it's, inc- the, you know, the time scales incredibly. Right, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a, only one person can ever can ever win the game, but... One one person can't win the game without allying with other people. I mean, it would just be impossible to play the entire game as a lone wolf. And so it's, it's sort of a given that you're going to have to work together uh, with one or more people at some point. But it's also a foregone conclusion that eventually you're just going to have to completely screw that person. And because this game operates on such a, a, such a slow time scale, and, and because um, it, it's this almost... Um, People get into into a into a really uh, like personal relationship with these alliances. Some people do anyway. You know, someone will open up diplomacy with this incredibly incredibly florid prose and <laughs> really in character 
kind of demeanor in, in the in-game message system. And, uh, you know, you because it's so slow, you can end up working with this person for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but then, at a, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, if you want to be the person who wins and not them, you have just got to stab them in the back. And I have never, ever, play, in any game, felt like more of an asshole than, than when I've played Neptune's Pride. Like, you, you need to have some, some severe fucking balls to play that like to, to, <laughs> like the, but, rob, rob is i played a game with rob and a, and a bunch of other guys including nick brecken who's at uh, bethesda and um uh, nick and i were secretly allied the entire game which people I, I was actually quite amazed that that no that almost i don't think anyone actually figured out until until the point when it was too late to, for anyone else to do anything about it and nick was was even I mean, far more ruthless than I was. I mean, Nick, he would send me these transcripts, you know, that, of his communications with people. And, <laughs> oh my and God, he was bragging about it. He wasn't bragging. Oh, just, that's just that's like bragging about cheating on your wife. No, he was. It wasn't bragging. He's just like, hey, man, this is the situation over in the you know the West Corner right now, and uh, and it would just be this like long conversation where he would he would take a guy's star, his star system, and and the guy you know the guy would be like, oh no, what are you doing? I. Uh, I thought we had a truce, and Nick's like, "Oh, sorry, man. I don't know what happened there. Here, just uh, send over some money, and um, <laughs> and um, just send me some tech, and like, we'll just forget about it." And the guy's like, "Uh, I guess so." And so, and <laughs> he, would do, he would do the same thing like three days later. I mean, he would just wear these people down until eventually they had just had, you know, it's it's like in Civ when you just end up in one of those situations where the AI just is supplicating its, itself to, to you and you're just offering you all this stuff except there's no enforcement of any you know like it could never enforce a 10 day treaty or something you know I mean any agreements you make are subject to dismissal by either player at any time I, I mean and, that sounds more like playing the, the board game diplomacy right where you've got the sort of explicit negotiation phase that you then sort of blow through and do whatever the hell you want and make enemies for the rest of your life yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I think go on well, I was going to say one thing that all of these have in common and you really touched about it is the, the sense of all of these games are designed where at the beginning of the game each person is too weak to go at it alone yeah. which you're sort of forced out of necessity to pick your allies and pick your enemies. But when you reach a certain point in the game where there's only going to be one winner, so you have to decide who you're going to turn on first and if you're going to turn on them before they turn on you. And that 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 seems to be a common thread between diplomacy and risk and uh, Neptune's pride. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And, um, and I think that really is a, an effective way of managing sort of backstabbing and betrayal. Uh, because you can't go out at the beginning and turn one and just be like, oh, I'm, I'm allied with no one. I'm taking you all on. Because you've just said, okay, I, what you said is I'm the first one out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and so it's just this little tense negotiation. And then if you're really good at it, but you're really good at it too soon, everyone goes, oh, he's the leader. And, you know, and now whatever alliances you've you've set up go away because now you're the person who needs to be brought back to the brought back to the herd. Here's that's, the thing that's that, very true, yeah. Here's the thing that bothers me about those ga- games like that, though, um, is I, 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 at least me, I run into this problem where I feel a little ill sometimes after I play these games. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I really can't sleep away. at night. No, yeah. I just I, I rarely walk away from a game of Risk saying, "Oh boy, that was that was really satisfying." I feel better about myself. And Neptune's Pride, I certainly don't walk away feeling better about myself. No, no, um, you feel like a terrible human. Right, and because uh, <laughs> you are one. <laughs> 
But I, I do worry that like the the zero sum nature of these games. Um, I don't know. I just I worry that it it, tr- it makes the experience it turns the experience fairly negative fairly early on, you know. Where risk, I mean, you're you're watching yourself basically be dismembered by the other players. And you can't do anything. <laughs> um, Neptune's Pride is even worse because it's just it's like that you know that 15 minutes in Risk where you're screwed, except it's stretched over a week and a half. Oh yeah. Um, and, and so I, I do wonder, like, when when you get these zero sum games, I mean, are you leaving yourself? How do you, how do you make sure that people walk away from it wanting to play it again? Because I know a lot of people who finished or, or wanting to still be your friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one of the ways that I've tried to address this in risk games is by um, messing around with the the win condition, so that when you stand up and say, "I'm going," that's it. I'm I'm betraying you. That's probably the last turn. That that victory is within your grasp. So if someone gets betrayed and gets upset, the whole thing's over in five to ten minutes anyway. And then you go, okay, well, you know, you did betray me, but you won. So I see your point, as opposed to getting betrayed and you get eliminated, and now you're watching the game, and it's continuing on for another hour and a half. Well, and that was certainly old risks. Big problem. Right, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, a lot of people still enjoy playing that and enjoy playing that way. But and I've explored different ways so that there's different versions of risk for people who want to have different different ways to handle it, you know, different things to walk away with. Doesn't this sort of fly in the face of what I see as the real trend in board gaming, at least, and, and I think actually largely in, in computer games as well, which is this trend towards co-op, right? I mean, most of the really interesting games that I've played over the last year have actually removed all levels of competition whatsoever, right? They've become, they become system maximizing games, right? Whether it's Castle Ravenloft or whether it's playing, I don't know, two player Gears of War co-op, right? I mean, there's a million games like this. Um, Is this a dying breed? This sort of truly not only competitive, but social backstabbing game. I don't know if it was a dying breed. I don't know if it was ever a popular breed to begin with. Um, I looked at competitive versus collaborative games last year at work and, and made a little little you know line where one end was purely competitive and one end was purely collaborative. And there's a lot of touch points in between. And risk is not all the way at the end um, because you do have to cooperate with other players to get somewhere. But ultimately, it's a competitive game. And there's just a lot of interesting places. And I think people are just in the point now of exploring the other end of the spectrum, which I think has been ignored for so long. And it's like a new fish, a new pool to fish in. Sure, ha- sure. Have you guys played um, Imperial or Imperial Twenty Thirty? No, nope. Th- nope. That's an interesting. That's an interesting game where, uh, you know, speaking of that that spectrum between cooperation and, and competition, um, it's a it's an economic economically oriented game um, played out on a on a world map or a map of Europe, depending on which version you're playing, and. Uh, players rather than controlling a particular country or territory they invest in in various countries um and whoever controls more of a country at any given at any given moment for as long as they have the highest stake as long as they own the most shares in that country um they get to control that country's military and build up its infrastructure and do everything else and the way the score is is calculated is is at the end of the game um your the value of all of the the shares you own in all the countries that determines your uh, 
your score. And a share in a given country is more valuable if the country is brings in more tax revenue and, and so on. Um, if you've made it more valuable, if you've built it up. To, so it adds almost so, like a, it adds almost like an acquire mechanic to that. Right? Yeah. Where, and, and good. Where, where you're not just, uh, controlling something, you're actually controlling something, but at the same time also trying to invest in other people's success. Right. And so, because even if at, at a given moment, um, you might be controlling China, so to speak, because you have, uh, the, the greatest investment in China, there might be other people who are nearly as invested in China as you are, and therefore are very interested in what you do to China, um, because it very much affects them as well. And uh, you can end up in situations where your the portfolio of stocks you have overlaps in weird ways with other players, and so you start creating these very temporary, unofficial little cooperative pacts where it's like, all right, look. I won't mess with India, which I know you're really invested in, if you don't mess with China, which we're both invested in. You know, things like that. Um, that, you know, the, the rules make no allowances for that, obviously, and there are, no, uh, there are no actual mechanics related to alliances or cooperation. But uh, the, just the, the way the game is played means a lot of times your interests align with someone else's, at least for a few turns at a time. It's right. a really interesting game. And all of that's presumably open, right? You know what other people's investments are. Yeah, everything's all out on the table. I mean, the simplest example I can think of that is something like King Me, you know, which is a sort of a classic, uh, very simple, very quick game uh, in which you're trying to advance certain members of a royal family or whatever the hell they are. I can't even remember towards kingship. Um, and everybody has some overlap, but you don't know what their overlap is. You can only sort of surmise that by who they might be putting up. Uh, to be king early and get killed versus who they might be subtly advancing up the ladder. Uh, and that's that's one of those games where the the fog of war, if you will, the sort of hidden information makes the alliances unclear and unsure. And I actually really enjoy that. I mean, one of the things that um, one of the things that I think engenders the fistfights and risk so much uh, is the fact that everything's out there in the open, right? I mean, unless you're playing blind, which requires many, many people where you've got a board set up in five different rooms and five different players or whatever, um, everybody knows whatever alliances have been made for the most part. And I think that that does definitely change the tenor of the game. I think of a game like DEFCON, uh, which involved a lot of, you know, make an alliance and then break it in the end because there's only one winner. Uh, the, the hidden information, I think, makes that a more interesting game. Well, yeah. that, that's definitely a, Go ahead. Well, that's definitely something that I, I've, I've noticed in my gaming preferences um, is that I increasingly prefer games where it's not always clear until the very end, till the last turn, who's going to win. And I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of these games we talked about, like Weinhandler and such, um, do is they don't make it easy to figure out you know who's going to win the game ultimately it's 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 really tough to figure out like who your enemy is and then you discover at the end oh well this is what happened but at no point in a lot of these games at no point do you feel like you're in a death duel with the other players you are but the games right. obscure yeah. that well that game i played with you of one of, of vine handler this weekend um i successfully managed to hide a really key part of my uh, my vine handle for the a majority of the game until the very last turn when I, you know, clicked a couple bottles into, into these gaps in the middle of my cellar, and uh, you know, just completely exploded my score. 
Well, actually, I'd like to talk about that game for one minute, because I think it was kind of a perfect example of the sort of dynamics we're talking about broadly here. Um, and that is, I mean, real early on, I had a really strong uh, hand in the red wine bottles. And because you have to place that, you can't keep these cards in your hand indefinitely. You have to put them down and expose what you have. Um, I was sort of forced to show that I was going to be going after red wine bottles. And MK, who was playing with us, had what I needed to basically win the game. So the rest of her game became about denying me victory. <laughs> and so I, I obsessed on getting the reds. Without much regard for her own uh, right. seller's needs. Right, well, she just didn't want to lose the game to me. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, playing to get these get these last bottles I need to win the game. And MK is just waiting to get something decent, you know, for herself while denying me the victory. And what neither of us is noticing is that the blue bottles are unaccounted for. By and large, um, they're, all, and, they're all in Remo's hand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he started he started showing he had quite a few of them, but it just it didn't dawn on us that we were actually in like grave danger. Right. To be clear, part of the game is that is that like many Rummy variants, you have to make full sets for them to really matter, and, yeah. and they have to either be all the same or all different. And so I can see how you could you could carefully construct a seller that looks like oh well, I've got one big blue bottle over here and one little blue bottle right. over there, exactly. and really all you need to do is drop in ah on my last turn, I drop a big bottle, a medium bottle, and a little bottle, and I you know manage yeah. to fill up six different sets at the same time. My yeah. my seller actually actually. Uh, comprised every single blue bottle in the game. I, uh, I had, well, okay, I, I so made... that just makes Rob an idiot, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, he, used, made, he it, had empty well, bottles. But, but yeah, I, had, I used empty bottles to save spaces. I had a kind of weird little clump of, I don't remember, like yellow ones or something on the other side. Like it didn't, if you were looking at it halfway through the game, it didn't look very homogenous. Um, even though it was entirely made up of two colors. It, it you know, it, it looked more sparse than it was, which is what I intended. But what I really enjoy in games like this is it gives us all a chance to be sort of actors, right? We stop just, like, playing strategically, and we start putting on little performances. <laughs> because so much of the game is about <laughs> convincing your fellow players that what is happening is not happening. That the evident, the things they can see with their own eyes, that's not, that's not really... You're just, you're just imagining that I'm, you know, coming after you. Yeah, it's absolutely yes, the case. But, but, yeah, but... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that's, that's one of the fun parts of Risk. I know I'm tying it back to it just because you guys all played this cool game that I didn't. And um, <laughs> <laughs> But just this sense of um, th- the best thing in Risk is to absolutely convince people that you're not winning and to get two other people to attack each other. I mean, because if you're basically like saying, look at me, I'm winning, I got this and that, and I got cards to turn in, I mean... The whole object of risk, I mean, not the object of risk, but that, and a lot of games like that is absolutely to be working the table that you are not in any sort of good position. Not in a bad position, but you're just not playing an optimal game and isn't that too bad. Which is which is crazy because it's you know risk is a game of near perfect information. I mean, there's a little bit hidden. Nobody knows exactly what's on your cards, but right. otherwise, it's a game of pretty perfect information. And and that it, you know that it becomes such a social game, I find bizarre in a way. I mean, and and it, it's part of what makes it sort of a unique little entry into the gaming lexicon because. 
you know, there are definitely games that have significant fog of war components, right? All the way, you know, from the simplest games like Stratego, where you just don't know what the other guy has, up to big, complex games that have, you know, advanced squad leader, where you've got massed units and question marks running around on the board, right? And it's so bizarre to find a social game that has essentially perfect information. It's true. It's a it's an it's an interesting little game. I've enjoyed my time uh, working on it. I mean, a lot of people have said that, or I read somewhere that poker isn't a card game. It's a people game that uses cards. And I feel like Risk is similar. It's a people game that uses figures, um, because you you really have to work the table as much. And it's a very different game if you ever play against an AI or online where you really don't care about alliances and what you're doing and you're just sort of playing it at the tactical level. It's kind of, of, it's kind of boring. It's just rolling dice over and over again. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, know, it's, it, it's just not that interesting. It's sort of like executing the math. It's like, I'll take right. this and then I'll get this many armies and I'll wait two turns and it loses some of its, uh, it, its personality conflict, which is what leads to, you know, people like myself storming out of rooms. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, in the video game world, I mean, one of the one of the great things about moving a game off the table and into a computer or a console is that you can have these elaborate, imperfect information systems, right? And the most elaborate of which, you know, Rob, you and I've talked about it quite a bit is Ruse, right? We had a whole show on that where right. the game is all about sort of creating these imperfect information situations. I mean, is that something, I mean, is that where these things go? Because there's no chance in a game of ruse one-on-one that anybody's collaborating. Obviously we're both out purely to kill each other and we're using the fog of war as a tool in that case. And that's what makes that game interesting. But can you, I I can't think of any examples of, of broader games that really have that fog of war component where you've got six, seven people playing that that you can really manipulate the fog of war like that. Well, I mean that's I mean that's where I really felt like that's where well that's where Neptune's pride really impressed me. Games like that, uh, and I think what makes them ideal is I mean that you played through the browser. It was it was persistent. You didn't have to watch it every day, though some of us did. Um, <laughs> but but I mean what what was neat there is is that the game was basically a very it was a very minimalist game. Yeah. Um, and, and everything about it was about player interaction. And when I was playing it, I was thinking, "Well, this is it. This is the future." Um, games that you know, just we play over a long, you know, over an extended period with our friends, um, that involve these sort of long, long form, like intricate strategies. They're basically built around us interacting, the same way that board games are built around us trying to read each other's intent and trying to reach tacit understandings. Yeah, yeah but... Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, but, it, you know, using... I, I wonder whether or not the long form of those games, you know, which, which you know, you can actually sort of say is the thing that Facebook has brought to us as well, right? These long, long games. I know Soren's working on games that, that sort of work in these sort of big asynchronous modes. Um, does Fog of War really work in that environment? I mean, you, you played Neptune's Pride and I oh, had Oh, absolutely. I mean. Yeah, no question. Uh, because, you, well, you can see the position of every star in the game. So you can see the entire layout of the star system. But until you're you're within um, scan range of it, you can't see. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but you can't see its infrastructure, and you can't see how many ships are on it. So right. you know who owns it, but you don't really know anything about its about its military strength. And because it takes so long to send a fleet to a star, and because combat is 
completely resolved every time there's a combat encounter. So one person's fleet will be completely destroyed, and the other one will be destroyed down to the point it took to get the other fleet dead. So it's it's a big commitment to send a fleet to a, to a star, and if you don't know what's on it, it's a huge gamble if you want to send a fleet there. So knowledge is extremely important, and, and that's one of the things that you can use alliances to manipulate, because there's an interesting... You know, there's a there's an alliance system in the game that can be used to formalize alliances. And then when you when you sign when you when you form an alliance, it will announce to the whole game these two players have now agreed not to fire on each other, and they can each see what the other sees. Um, but there's no reason you have to go through that. You can just send someone a message and say, "Hey, let's team up." But I don't want to. Let's not form an actual alliance. You actually uh, form an alliance with the person you don't trust. That, that's the way that worked in that game. Because it took, it took money to form an alliance, and money was, was always in short supply. So no, if you formed an alliance, it was kind of like, well, this is how you show me I'm serious. I, I disagree. I don't, uh, well, that, that can be the case, but I don't, that's never how I've treated it. Um, I, I've, for example, in that game with Nick, that, the one that uh, I, I still need to, uh, to work off a grudge for, I guess, is that, you know... That allowed us. That, I mean, what allowed us to be successful is the fact that we never announced our alliance. Never announced our announced our alliance in the game, even though we did effectively completely trust each other. Um, and so it allowed us to each know a lot more than we would have without that alliance, without other people knowing we would know things. So I would, we would both, have, we both had much greater visibility over the field, um, but people didn't know that we did. Uh, it's it's really interesting, and I find myself actually very reluctant most of the time. I, I in fact, whenever I play Neptune's Bride, and I've actually Nick has never played since then. That that game stressed him out so much that he's never <laughs> been able to go back. I'm not kidding; it's hilarious. But uh, I, I've played actually maybe half a dozen games since then, and um, I, I've never I've never ever been as unscrupulous as I was in that first game. Um, <laughs> I really haven't. But um, one of the things that I that I do is I use the official alliance announcement system when I need to for strategic purposes, right? So if I'm if generally if I'm in a situation where people are obviously teaming up against me and people are setting fleets in, that's when I'll say, hey man, let's form an alliance. Here's the fifty bucks announce the thing, uh, because then it's other people can see I have these allies now, and I, that is almost like a, it's like almost a, a defense mechanism. Um, so I tend to only use the um, the actual alliance system for specific purposes basically when i want other people to know that but but i mean this is this is why i think games like this sort of are, are, are where we're headed is just that i think we're under a problem where if if a game is too systematic i i think you're under a problem where one game begins to play a lot like another i mean like Catan. Has that I, problem, I think right? that's like, a fair criticism of board gaming in general. I mean, I think I think board gaming does have that tendency to be like, oh, this is just like pandemic, but right, right. But I think when when you add that wrinkle where it becomes as much about reading your fellow players and sort of communicating without doing so obviously, you know, whenever it becomes whenever the diversity starts coming from the players rather than the game itself. Um, I, I think that's when you that's when you're on you're you're in really good territory because then it doesn't matter if the game is brilliant or not it just has to be good at fostering the kind of interesting interactions that keep people engaged. Well, so, yeah, so there's a there's a whole another genre of games that I think has recently emerged which really makes that work, which is the co-op with a trader game, 
right? Shadows over Camelot, uh, 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 Battlestar Galactica. I'm sure I'm yeah. missing I, a few others. Doesn't Pandemic have an expansion with that? Yep, Pandemic. Well, except that the wait, that's, really? It's it's not hidden, right? In that case, okay. you're playing right. against I think a known adversary. Oh, some, is someone the disease? Someone's the, basically a terrorist, bioterrorist. Oh, right? But wow. but in Shadows over Camelot and and Battlestar Galactica, certainly there's this this added dimension of someone among you is the bad guy. Right. And that I mean, you talk about fist fight inducing games. Battlestar Galactica has induced near fist fights in my house quite a few times because there's that sense that not only especially if you're playing a big game, not only one person might be a traitor, but two people might be a traitor. <laughs> and so now there's this path of information where the traitors are actually trying to find each other in the game before they're revealed. And and that creates this whole sort of secondary negotiation dynamic that's all winks and nods. And uh, I find that really, really interesting. And that's something that I haven't seen sort of ported over into the video game world. I mean, a lot of, I think, core concepts sort of get worked out in a couple dozen board games and then sort of make their way into strategy games online um, or, or in the console world. And that idea of a multiplayer game, I meaning more than two people, where somebody may or may not be fighting against you, or even if somebody is definitely fighting against you, um, I, I I have this love hate relationship with that kind of system because that talk about reading people, right? I mean, in poker, you know the guy on the other side is trying to kill you, right? In this case, you don't even know if the guy on the other side is trying to kill you. There, there's there's um, I don't know of any examples of that in the strategy space. There might be, but that I'm not aware of. But um, that does kind of remind me of of stuff like the ship, and mm-hmm. you know there there are other games with similar concepts, you know, the sort of murder mystery conceit, basically. But the ship is definitely a game where you're running around this first-person environment and everyone, uh, you know, ostensibly is a civilian. I mean, everyone is, is, you know, there's no military-themed stuff in that game. I mean, everyone's like a person on this cruise ship. Um, But (laughs) everyone's like weirdly, secretly trying to kill each other, but only trying to kill very specific other people. Without anybody uh, noticing, right. Without yeah. anyone noticing, yeah. Um, and that, that I found that game actually a really fun, tense experience. I, I don't know if it's still around or what. But. I, I mean, it is. It's an interesting dynamic, those, those hidden trader games, because I can't imagine trying to design a game like that and have it end where it should most of the time, because it's kind of like Lord of the Flies in a box. <laughs> <laughs> so where is that supposed to end? With people like eating each other's flesh? Well, that's the thing is, I mean... In, in Shadows Over, I haven't played Battlestar Galactica, partly because every time I've tried to approach a game in progress at your house, <laughs> the people have yelled at me. To, to, to leave. They're so worked up about their little, you know, 12 angry men scene that's going on. And they're, <laughs> they're like all, they don't want to miss or, or miss a tell or reveal a tell. And so when I walk over and I just like, oh, what turn is it? Uh, this is, looks like an interesting game. They're like, you need to get out of here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, but one of the interesting things about Shadows Over Camelot is it—it's possible for there to be no traitor just through luck of draw. It's rare, but it's possible that the traitor is in the box. But it's also possible, due to sheer paranoia of all the players, for the game to be lost because everyone's too busy looking for the dagger in the curtain that isn't there. That the game sort of overwhelms them, and that's like just such a very interesting social dynamic where the players are their own undoing. 
because no one no one can trust each other. Well, that totally plays into that thing that uh, Sid Meier brought up in that talk like last year, right? Where players perceive a lack of randomness in random systems. Yeah. So if you've got a trader mechanic, then the action of the game itself can convince players that no, this isn't just happening. You know, right. someone is making it happen. Right, and 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 you know, shadows. Are, I mean, um, Battlestar Galactica is particularly good at that because there are numerous mechanics where you're sort of collecting a set of cards, and the cards include a little bit of randomness, but they also include contributions from the other players. So it gives the 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 trader the opportunity to theoretically sabotage things without necessarily being obvious that oh, somebody in this little deck sabotaged things. I mean, it's it's a it's a really interesting mechanic. I find myself drawn to it intellectually and repulsed by it, into, like emotionally. <laughs> right? I, I actually get really worked up in those situations, and and you know, people still talk about those games years later. You remember that time when I knew you were the traitor the whole game, and you convinced me you weren't, and then you stabbed me in the back in the last minute. You know, I mean, those people really remember those kinds of personal affronts because they become personal. They're not just about the game anymore. No, you're well, Rob, Rob apparently still remembers that, that Neptune's pride game. So. <laughs> you're emotionally invested. And that's the thing that, you know, really makes a difference. If, if I'm being asked not just to play a game, but to act and to bluff and to hide my motives, um, you know, that's a whole different level. I'm not just sitting and having a drink and thinking, Oh, I'm going to play this card. I I'm on, you know, it's it's a it's like diffusing a bomb or a hostage situation. There's no relaxing. Right. And there's a great I can't remember the name of it now. and It's going to kill me. There's a classic one shot. I think it was done as a convention uh, module D&D uh, setup where you basically it's designed to be played in four to five hours. Everybody gets a pre-made character and and everybody sort of gets dropped, as you would expect in a convention setting, just dropped right into the action. And you're given sort of the background on your character and everybody is given these set of instructions that they're the traitor in the group. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've actually, I, I've been, I was in it once and I ran it once and I ran it for a bunch of like 10 year olds playing D and D and I will never do that again in my life because I think these kids grew up about three or four years in <laughs> one four hour session because oh, there was just this unbelievable. So level. that is Lord of the flies. I mean, it was, that, uh... it was a totally, I had, I thought it would be really fun. And I like, it was for a birthday party. And one of the kids, the kid whose birthday party, there's like one guy who figures it out, who has like extra special powers. I can't even remember. Um, and they're actually all brainwashed. They actually are all an adventuring party, but they're all, they all enter this room having just been sort of, you know, brainwashed that they're all the traitor. Uh, there's some backstory for it. And so there's this, but they're all trying not to reveal that they're the traitors. So they're all subtly trying to do the worst roles they can. It was hysterical, right? Uh, but <laughs> I played a, at a convention, a role playing thing. I'm sure it wasn't that exact one, but it was like we were dropped in a monastery and they would only agree to, agree to heal us if we could get rid of the traitor in the midst. And every person was told they were the traitor. And we got thrown into the catacombs of this monastery to work it out. And within half an hour, real time, we were all dead. I mean, <laughs> we had barricaded ourselves behind doors. We had separated into factions. And then the factions stopped fighting each other and just fighting themselves. And it was this giant scrum of combat with just combat rolls for half an hour. So we were all dead. It's, it's interesting. I mean, maybe this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, maybe maybe this is a stupid thing to bring up. But it's it's funny that when you have that many people who all who are all told to the traitor, it's interesting that 
that you never run into a situation where at least one of them, you know, sa- says something. But I guess not. I mean, maybe th- maybe there's no reason that would ever happen. I don't know. Yeah, certainly in in games of you know Battlestar uh, or or Shadows over Camelot, I've never seen anybody voluntarily reveal no, themselves. Yeah, without a just, game reason, you know. Right, but I, I guess I'm just thinking like from you know from a probability standpoint, if there's like ten people, you know, I mean it's at least slightly more likely than if there are only one or two. Who, who think they're the well, well in this game that i ran with these 10 year olds we did reach a point before like the actual like i mean there was a way that it could have ended if they had like successfully gotten through it and the, the guy whose birthday it was had done all the stuff he was supposed to do it ended before that still after four or five hours with one of them finally sort of saying all right you figured me out i'm the traitor and then the you know the kid <laughs> going no you're not i'm the traitor right and yeah was, that's that's what i meant that's exactly what i meant yeah right but but okay. but it was definitely at that point where it was like he was like one hit point from dead or something like <laughs> right. that he was like okay you got me yeah hilarious have okay. you guys read the man who was thursday no gk chesterton no. Okay, just you you have to read it uh, because I mean it's it's this um, it's this great book set set where the world's divided between anarchists and policemen, and policemen's job is basically to stop anarchists from blowing shit up, um, but one of them actually gets promoted into the inner circle of the anarchist council, basically, and it's all about him trying to lead this anarchist revolt while still like saving society. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, it just, this conversation reminds me of it because it, it does involve that sort of hall of mirrors thinking that a good trader mechanic creates. Yeah. Absolutely. What, was, what was the name of it again? I mean, and that, that plot has been, has certainly been employed for, you know, more, more than, more than one other fictional work. And it's a conceit that definitely there's a, uh, a certain, um, elemental appeal to that, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the book is the man who was Thursday. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I, if if uh, this goes back a few levels in the conversation, yeah. I, you know, let me know if that's not uh, if it's a little too far back. But have you listened to the show? <laughs> <laughs> I love this show. I'm a big fan. Um, but uh, speaking of the fog of war, um, I forget. Was it Julian? Were you saying that? You yeah. Know, you, yeah. Um, it's funny. I. Star, Starcraft 2 uh, and Starcraft generally speaking um, that's a game that obviously has explicit fog of war um, in the traditional RTS sense but there's also like a really interesting aspect of where information and intel comes in at the really high levels of that game and this is something that cannot be effectively employed unless both players are, are of a certain level but I've been watching a lot of competitive StarCraft recently, and most recently the uh, GSL, the StarCraft II, the first official StarCraft II league. And I was actually at uh, at someone's house yesterday with a bunch of other people watching the finals of the GSL because we're horrible, horrible nerds. And, Nerd. Uh, Nerd. Yeah, it was pretty... It was, it was super fun, though, I gotta say. And, uh, you know, guys will... You watch these matches, and they're commentated, you know, by, by people who know what they're talking about. And guys will do really crazy things. You know, someone will be... Because scouting is endlessly important in StarCraft. You always need to have something in your opponent's base or on your way there or observing nearby so that you can figure out what tech they're researching and what they're building so you can counter it. But people will do amazing things. I mean, they will, they will deliberately start building things that 
are not what they're going to build just for the like the four seconds where the other guy's probe briefly ducks into their base and then as soon as the guy's probe leaves they'll cancel the building or they'll stop they'll stop upgrading the thing and then the guy who snuck in will be like oh he's going robotics and so then he'll start building the things to counter that and you get it you know it starts nesting deeper and you get in these situations where people can just do these little little tiny things you know just wait a little longer to to build the barracks or or you know build this thing here rather than there and it's when you when you see the guys commentating and and realizing what's going on and then and then pointing it out and then those conclusions are borne out by what the other player ends up doing a moment later uh, you realize what kind of crazy mind games are going on on top of just the, the straight up, you know, mechanical skill that is necessary to compete at really high levels of, of StarCraft. But it's it's one of those weird meta things that is not part of the design of the game at all, as opposed to Ruse, where it's a fundamental element of the game. Um, and you just, it, it's hard for me to imagine how you'd, as a designer, how you'd ever even design for that. But, you know, when people need when people get so good at the game that they need it to be even more complex than the mechanics allow, uh, that, that kind of crazy manipulation emerges. Well, I mean, that's poker, right? That's, that's why the, you yeah. know, the most popular form of poker is also the simplest, right? Texas Hold'em is about as boring as you can get as a mechanic, right? But because it's so simple, it becomes entirely about how well you know the other players. Yeah, Absolutely. Hmm. But I don't know. I think like what I really appreciate about a game like Ruse is that you know in StarCraft I will never have the skill where I I can no, where I play a level I. where I can like create like four barracks because resources are tight in my games because I don't have that many of them so I can't I can't pull those deceptions off because yeah. it just requires you have to be too fast you have to be too good at managing your economy that's that's impossible for me it's a moonshot yeah. but in ruse it's made a core game element that anyone can use it's not Dude, you can buy it you can buy deception right you can just choose to invest in it right exactly it's a power it's not something you create through your own like virtuoso performance it's something you're given this is your and, ability to treat and people. maybe that's why ruse still fell so flat for me Uh oh that's fighting terms no no <laughs> no 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 i think we all ruse is a nuanced game okay <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I, I think it is interesting. I think the best mind games revolve around the simplest systems. But I, I think, you know, one of the, one of the you know, difficulties I, I think um, computer games have is it just, it just seems like it's very difficult to create a system that players are going to buy into. Um, like if you're talking about yeah, trader absolutely. mechanics or deception, like it requires, it's weird. I, I see this happen all the time. People sit down to a board game and they all just voluntarily submit themselves to the magic circle. You know, oh, these are the rules of the game. We are totally on board with those rules. I'm the traitor. I'm going to work hard to hide it. You know, when you're playing online with other people, that sort of that sort of co- like play requires cooperation. That's harder to come by. You see simpler, cruder forms of cooperation in the game space, um, and you're more likely to see griefing um, than you are to see like deception. But isn't that a function of anonymity? I mean, so many multiplayer games are truly anonymous. I, d- I generally won't completely punk somebody if they're actually somebody I know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's that's true. I think perhaps that's one of the reasons that a game like Neptune's Pride work, works, and maybe that's why social games 
um, you know, have actually a really good future for strategy gamers at least, well, uh, because it's not anonymous. You, there are relationships that the game is playing off of. And it's funny that uh, you know that, <laughs> like I was sort of saying earlier with Neptune's Pride, it's funny because you can see where people how much people are willing to put themselves into that magic circle because people will, like I said, I'll get these, these, these fucking, you know, entreaties from people, these just huge, like, greetings from the... His Highness the Lord, yeah. Yeah, of Mars land. And, like, you know, (laughs) I read this thing, and, I mean, I've gotten these messages in Neptune's Pride that are, like, eight paragraphs long, and they, you know, signed his royal space majesty, <laughs> Royal Grob the second. But that's I, the same like, person I, who's on Xbox Live going, Hi, my name is Beauregard. Right? right. I mean... Yeah. yeah, I know, but I mean then, but, like, I'm not at that, you know, like, I can't buy into that the same way, I've just personally, and so I respond, and I'm just like, so, do you want, like, a, like a tech thing or what <laughs> like i can give you 25 bucks i don't know and uh um i had a had a follow-up on that but i forget what it was but uh, anyway yeah it's it's totally it's definitely true i have found that you know same when i'm playing Catan or something on on xbox live like i definitely treat it much more like i'm a purely mechanical system it becomes solitaire a, yeah yeah exactly like even even when i'm playing with a an actual friend like i'll you know, we we both will just implicitly play the game in a much more efficient way, and we even, you know, we we count like I actually do math when I'm playing Catan on on Xbox Live, which I never bother with, you know, on uh, in the board game version. And part of that is because since it is on a computer or on a console, um, it's possible for the developers to very very easily throw up a lot of statistical information just at the drop of a hat because it's all just being calculated right there. So you can just e- very easily find out. You know what numbers have been rolled and and what the percentages are of this and that and how many dots are here and there and it's it's you can make these very shrewd calculations very very easily. Whereas in the board game, I I find myself when I'm playing Catan with people um, who are actually sitting right next to me, I I, I appraise things in a in a much more off the cuff way and we everything is kind of just more kind of nudgy and you know we're all just kind of doing doing stuff. Um, but you know, once you put it in through a mechanical system, it becomes much more easy to evaluate things on a mechanical numerical basis. Uh, I find that true as well. When I play, uh, let's say Carcassonne, for example, in person, it's just flipping tiles and making small talk and hoping it yeah. works out. Yep. When I play Catan um, on my iPhone versus people, besides having more time, and they're not saying, "Are you going to go yet?" I will right. check. <laughs> yeah. I will check stats and I will check numbers, and the feedback loop is is great because in that game, if you put a tile down that creates an unplayable space due to the, what's left in the tiles, it'll put a big X in it. Right. And there, yeah, there's right. A, there is a malicious delight in going, oh, look, <laughs> I put this here, and you, your three guys are locked down on that city for the rest of the game, and it's turn seven. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and it's, it's a guy I work with, you know? But, like, why am I allowed to be so mean over the phone? If I did that in real life, you're like, you're a jerk. I'm not playing with you. Yeah. Yeah, but you still do it in real life. Yeah, I wouldn't see it though. I would, you know, <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't know that what was left in the tile mix, you know, prevented that space from ever right, being. Right, because you have an eidetic memory counting every single version, right. every single tile. Right. Right. But I, I, I do think even in general, I it, when I'm in person, I have a, a softer side, and yeah, I want to win, but I don't want to win to the point where these people don't want to play with me ever again. <laughs> oh, see, now that's that's weird because I find in person I'm much more of a son of a bitch. Really. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I, well, okay, I'm... That, you can intimidate people by the fact that you're 11 feet tall. <laughs> well, that's that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I think... I think in person, I just I just take much more satisfaction. This is what I really love about like in like playing in person as opposed to um, in, in seeing video people games. weep, like physically. Well, there's this sort of glorious satisfaction in totally pulling the rug out from under someone. Well, but and you're also the worst sandbagger in the world. You'll always be like, "This game sucks. It's entirely random, and I have no chance." I mean, you you act it hard. Yeah. Well, no, that's just that's just because I'm bipolar when I'm playing a game. Like, it's every turn, it's agony or ecstasy. Yeah, or I, I'm kind of that same way. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think this is, you know, I think when I'm when I'm playing like video games, like the satisfaction of victory is different than it is in a board game because it it tends to be again like I outplayed you using this mechanical system. Uh, we both had access to the same tools, same information, you know. And so in a StarCraft match, I, I don't take it personally, and I don't, I rarely take it personally. Um, but in a board game where you've got where, where you've got information that you've got that card like hiding in your deck, that's going to allow you to at some point completely demolish somebody. Um, I just I just relish that, and and what I really love is the other person always knows it just happened, and maybe that's the difference is that in a lot of video games. The moment when you totally torch someone chance, someone's chances of winning happens without comment. Nobody knows it happened. Only you know it happened. Um, but in a board game, you get these great moments where you you lay the card down, and you just watch their you know someone's face crumple <laughs> as you just put put an end to their game. And I, I think that's I think that's important. Um, you know, to actually to make to make sure that the reason why someone just lost the reason why someone just won is instantly and brutally clear yeah i think we're talking about two slightly different things because I, I i do love that moment of the dr- dramatic reveal yeah. where you know you have all fallen into my clever trap or, <laughs> yeah none well, of yeah them. like the the vine holler moment i described with rob this weekend right. yeah it's with the like... bottles like that that is truly satisfying for all the reasons you said i guess my difference i was saying is if if i've got two moves early on in a game and they're relatively equal. I will tend to take the less mean one. Mm. Not, you know, like if I really, I won't take a move that I feel will ruin my chances of winning. But if I've got two different ways to do it and we just sat down to play and we spent 20 minutes going over the rules and everyone's got a drink and we're ready to start playing, I don't like to come howling out of the gate at a very unconscious <laughs> level and yeah. start just slapping people around and saying, you've wasted your time learning these rules. You're out of this. You know, yeah, I, it, so I, I tend to be getting to just play a little bit. And it's almost unconscious of, I want everyone to have a good time. Then as the game goes on, I care less about that. And then I take the thrill of winning or the agony of losing much more personal. But yeah. it's that sort of social experience. Yeah, you don't want anybody to go away mad because they're in the room and they could punch you. Right. <laughs> or, I just it. established myself as the asshole three moves ahead, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> we edit that out. <laughs> edit? We don't edit the show. Well, there's also something to be said for... And I guess this can apply to computer games as well, but but I find it, at least in my life, it's happened a lot more with board games recently because board games have been kind of a new thing for me in the last year or two. Um, when you're sh- and I've had it on both ends, me being the person who's taught someone the game or or someone who is taught the game by someone else, you don't want that person's first experience with a game to just be oh what the fuck I just got owned by you because you knew all the rules and I didn't exactly. and like you know yeah. what is, that's that sucks and. Uh, 
<laughs> which is why it was really funny, Rob, that your way of teaching me uh, Memoir 44 was, all right, Chris, you get to be the Germans who have like <laughs> two guys and uh, like zero command cards and you just get rolled over. Okay, hang on, hang on. Allies. Yeah. That was a complete accident. I just like I always set, I always set myself yeah, no, up. No, 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 no. You just established yourself as the dickweed. So I think I, I totally believe Remo on this one. No, no, but I also want to challenge worthy of my skills. Um, so I mean, what happened with this? I just set up the board, the Allied side facing me, and the tutorial scenario in Memoir Forty Four is Pegasus Bridge. Like the Germans are asleep. So I mean, that's kind of hard to. It's like it's like you could have made him the other side. It didn't occur to me to switch sides. I would start playing, and then Remo's like, this is bullshit, I've got two cards, I'm like sitting there like looking at a rack of six. I'm like, yeah, maybe this should have gone the other way. Did I call in the airstrike now, or wait? It was um, fun. It actually ended up being a really good game, because I, uh, for whatever reason, I guess just the way like various factors played out, I don't know all the ins and outs of that game yet, but uh, it did end up being actually a pretty close game, and it was, it was kind of fun, actually, um, there being a few moments during the game where I felt like I did have a chance, uh, you know, briefly, but uh, it ended up actually being quite dynamic and exciting. Um, when you guys play memoir, or Rob, when you play, do you play in, in matched pairs where you play the same battle twice with people switching sides? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I you... later I learned like the next day, by the I'm sorry, Rob doesn't know this part. I was telling someone about this the next day and he was like, yeah, you're both, you're supposed to both play that you're supposed to like turn it around and do it again so that you both play from like the shitty side. And right. I'm like, and what? You, again? Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> and then you add up your combined score because one side has the edge and is supposed to win. The question is, how well do you deal with the losing side? That's the, that's the, uh, the trick. Yeah. That, it, I mean, that was just, it was the end of a day of play. So we didn't, yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. Get no, it, made, that. it made complete sense that we didn't play it again. Yeah. But I, I do think I, I generally play matched pairs, but I, I will admit like by the time I played through a scenario once, I'm rarely inclined to go back and go through it again. Yeah, that's fair. Like, yeah, even that's from, fair. Even I totally agree. Side. Yep. Cause you feel like you just had a story told to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, right. To that game's credit. It does feel like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was definitely the case. Well, that, no, I mean, ours ended with like a weekend, like a weekend team of par- British paratroopers like charging in a German machine gun fire, and like each of us, like we were both one away yeah, yeah. from losing the game, and you know, I just got a lucky card at the last minute that changed the game. Yeah, it was a really good narrative. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't play that match play just because like you go that two out of three. And I mean, you know, it's not it's not two out of three. It's it's on points. But either way, I do I do get hooked I do get hooked on that narrative. And then when we turn it all around, it's like, well, that never happened. And I, now you're the other side. I I totally agree. And I'm a sucker for narrative in games. And it would be hard for me to do it. I was just wondering if you were aware that that was uh, in there in a way that a lot of people play. Yeah. Um. Well, on that note. Um, we should probably wrap it up before we go. Uh, there's a bit of housekeeping. Um, I'd like to remind listeners that flashofsteel.com is taking donations uh, to help cover server costs and to finance this podcast. And Troy's um, beer budget. That's true. He's going to get so much IPA, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but that's not why you're donating. You're not, you not buying Troy IPA. You're buying uh, possibly 
you know, server uptime um, and pod and games for this podcast. Because uh, it turns out that press copies aren't always available when we want them to be. Um, and donations give Troy a little more freedom in what he can write about and give us a little more freedom in what we can talk about. Uh, so you can make a donation by heading over to Flash of Steel and pressing the large, discreet donate button on the right-hand <laughs> side. Uh, Troy should be back next week um, with an exciting topic and maybe a guest. Uh, we'll all find out then. Um, in the meantime, I'd like to thank our guests for, sh- uh, for joining us tonight. And thank you for listening. Uh, say goodnight, everyone. Goodnight, everyone. Goodnight, everyone.